All right, welcome to LifeBridge, everybody. My name is Pastor John. I'm the teaching pastor here at LifeBridge. And before I jump into the sermon today, uh, we're coming up to the end of the year. So I just wanted to uh, communicate with you guys our giving goal for the end of the year up into uh, the new year. So every year we kind of set a goal and we budget and we plan on how much uh, we're going to spend and how much we need for giving in order to make our budget. So this year, towards the end of the year, we need $80,000 for the month of December. It's definitely a doable goal, and I just wanted to kind of highlight this, and we're going to talk about it over the next few weeks, uh, but tonight, or today, tonight, what am I talking about? <clears throat> it feels dark in here, doesn't it? Whatever. Today, I just wanted to highlight this, and how every, every week, basically, we, we talk, we say something in the welcome about why we should give, and how giving is important for our life in Christ. Bevan mentioned it today, that giving, giving changes us. And so uh, I encourage you guys to be generous this Christmas season, to be generous to your church community, to be generous to your family, be generous to those within the broader community, because we really do believe that the words of Jesus are true when he says that it is better to give than to receive. And so I just encourage you to foster in yourself a heart of generosity and how when we foster that heart of generosity this Christmas season, especially it's a good reminder for us to be generous, it changes us. It produces a heart of generosity within us. And that's what we're really after, is life change, heart change, and ultimately it's obedience to the words of Jesus. So I encourage you to be generous this Christmas season. We'll talk about more what our giving does here at LifeBridge in the next couple of weeks. But for today, I just want to encourage you to foster a heart of generosity. All right, let's open with prayer, and then we'll jump into our Advent sermon for today. Lord. God, we praise you, we glorify your name, you alone are holy, you alone are good. So God, would you be honored, would you be glorified in our, the disposition of our heart, Lord, as we grow in generosity, and Lord, as we worship you together in community today, and Lord, as we open your word to learn from your word, would you form within us more the goodness of Christ, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so today we're starting our Advent series. Advent is a word that just means arrival or appearing, revealing, refers to the first appearing of Jesus, the Messiah, the birth of Jesus, which we're celebrating at Christmas time. And as Christians, we also use it to refer to the second appearing of Jesus, which we are still waiting for. Because Jesus in his earthly ministry said that he would return someday, and so we're awaiting that second appearing, the second advent of Christ. A big part of Advent is waiting and learning to be patient something that we are not good at in general within our fast-paced uh, McDonald's, Ikea culture, <laughs> okay? Uh, when we want something, we usually just kind of get it, right? Waiting is something that is a challenge for us. My daughter, Ellie, <clears throat> uh, a couple weeks ago, she said, man, I just wish I could go to sleep and wake up and it would be December 25th. And I'm like, yep, that's kind of the point. <laughs> that's the point of Advent. And if you remember, like when I was a kid, once the, the clock calendar rolled over into December, it was painful every day. And then we do this little Advent calendar, and I'm like, oh, I like the candy, but it's just a reminder that Christmas isn't here yet, and I can't wait for Christmas. And kids don't do this, but uh, I would like... I would like, I knew where my parents had the presents, so I would like sneak in and go find them, and yeah, I got in trouble a lot. 
But super fun, because I just couldn't wait for Christmas. I was so excited for it, and patience I had not developed very much in yet. But that's kind of what Advent is. It's about developing patience. Okay, the, the first announcement of the Messiah comes in Genesis 3.15. So from the entire history of the people of Israel, they had been waiting for the Messiah. It's a long time. It's a long time to wait. And so in Advent, we kind of put ourselves in their place. And imagine what it must have been like to wait for Jesus, for the Messiah, the Savior, the Redeemer for that long. That many generations. And we have a good case study right now, even. Because now we're waiting for the return of the Messiah. And we've been waiting for generations as well. And so just as much as we long for Christ to return in the Advent season, we imagine what it must have been like waiting for Christ to appear in the first place. And so what we're going to do is go through the birth narrative of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew for the next few weeks. And Matthew 1 kind of begins with this. It begins with the genealogy, which for most of us, when we read a genealogy, we're like, boring, right, and flip it over to the next page. <laughs> you, who who's done that before? Be honest, okay? I've done that before, all right? We're not even going to read the whole thing today, and I think I even forgot to put it in the whole devotional, but I encourage you to read it. Read through Matthew 1 through 17, and you kind of feel guilty when you do it, though, right? You're like, I don't even recognize all of these names. I feel like I should read it because it's in the Bible, but ah, I don't get it. Right? Okay, so Matthew 1 is a little bit of a different type of genealogy that's actually quite fascinating when you dig into it a little bit. But what Matthew is communicating here is a couple of key themes. He's communicating this genealogy of Jesus, and he's trying to show, what we're going to see in the big idea, is that Jesus is the fulfillment of the people of Israel. More specifically, he is the fulfillment of the promise given to Abraham and to David. That he is indeed the Messiah, the one that they have been waiting for for generation after generation after generation, who has redeemed the people of God. And so he goes like three blocks of 14 generations. It's a long time to wait. So he begins, Matthew 1, verse 1, which, by the way, if you're, if you're trying to like do an attention-grabbing, like an a in, intro for your book, genealogy is not the way to do it, right? You're like, whoa, I didn't even make it through half of the first chapter and I'm asleep. No, he, to the people of Israel, this is fascinating, right? This is their history. This is their story encapsulated in the names that we see here. And most of these are familiar to us. And it's so vitally important that Jesus is the descendant of Abraham, that he is the descendant of David, to be the Messiah, that Matthew highlights it first and foremost. But, okay, I'm, gonna, I'm getting ahead of myself. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. We see his primary themes in verses 1, and at the end of it in verse 17. If we skip ahead all the way to verse 17, he said, Thus there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. Okay, so the number 14 is significant. It's a derivative of seven, right? So it implies completion, wholeness, like fulfillment of God's covenant promise. And he highlights Abraham and David here in this. So as I said, Jesus fulfills the covenant promise made to Abraham and to David. The covenant made to Abraham was that he would, that God promised to make him into a great nation, 
and that he would bless him. That was fulfilled in the people of Israel. You can read about this in Genesis chapter 12. And at the end of the blessing, he says, All people on earth will be blessed through you. This he fulfills through Jesus, through the Messiah. The blessing to all people that extends now to people from every nation, tongue, and tribe in the church. And then he fulfills the promise that he made to David. In 2 Samuel 7, God promises David, he says, Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. So he promises that there will be somebody on the throne of, from David's line forever. This is the Messiah. Jesus is the king. Jesus' main message throughout his earthly ministry was the kingdom of God has come. And he is the king of his kingdom. And remember, he tells Pilate that his kingdom is not of this earth. It's of a different kingdom, the spiritual kingdom. And so Jesus is the king of his kingdom, and he is the king of this new creation that he is bringing about, and this whole restoration And Matthew will tease these themes out throughout his gospel, but here in his genealogy, he highlights those. You're like, whoa, that's a lot out of just like that. Yep, it's very dense, it's very rich. Matthew's primarily writing to a Jewish audience because he doesn't really explain a lot of his, uh, a lot of the Jewish traditions and the things. He's just assuming that they get it and they know. So he's primarily writing it to a Jewish audience. And here's his big idea of these 17 verses. Jesus is the fulfillment of Israel and our great Redeemer. Okay, so we kind of already emphasized how Jesus is the fulfillment of Israel, and that means for us that he is our great Redeemer. Jesus is our great Redeemer. There's two themes in here that he's going to tease out. The work of Jesus is for all people, all types of people, not just the people of Israel. It means you don't have to trace your lineage back to Abraham in order to be accounted as a part of the people of God. This was a big idea in Jesus' day and a big struggle for many folks. And that means you and I are included in that. Also, Jesus is our Redeemer. Okay. I'll show how both of these are highlighted in the genealogy in just a moment. But Jesus is our Redeemer, that we are in need of redemption. Remember, Matthew is writing this specifically to a Jewish audience. And there were some in Jesus' day who were arguing, or in Matthew's day, after Jesus had died, rose from the dead, and ascended into heaven. In Matthew's day, who are arguing that we don't need Jesus. We can kind of just run it back and follow the Old Testament law of Moses. We're good with that. Why do we need this Messiah, this Redeemer? We're not even sure if he's the real deal. Why should we follow this when we can just continue following the law of Moses? Let's maintain the status quo and keep living as we always have. So subtly, Matthew was arguing through this genealogy, like, guys, remember, this didn't work. <laughs> this does not work. We need something better. We need a new covenant. We need a redeemer to redeem us from our sin. And he highlights both of these in a genealogy. We see these highlights by the way he diverges from a typical genealogy. So when you usually read a genealogy in the Bible, it's like, so-and-so is the father of so-and-so, fathered so-and-so, and and it just kind of goes on and on and on. In this, he diverges in a few significant ways on in his genealogy, usually by mentioning women, which was uncommon in his day. So Matthew 1, verse 5 says, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. 
So hyperlink back to the Old Testament, and remember the story of Rahab in the book of Joshua. If you remember, ooh, I should probably give you guys a warning on this. There's going to be some PG-13 content in here. Um, so if, if you guys have your kids in here, your call, all right? But uh, I'll give you a couple, uh, yeah. There's some PG-13 stuff in here. <clears throat> all right, so uh, Rahab lived in Jericho when the people of, and she had a, she had a promiscuous occupation. Good? All right. <laughs> she lived in Jericho. And when the people of Israel came in to the land, they sent a couple of spies into Jericho. And Rahab housed the spies. And she hid them. And then she even helped them escape and get away when the people of Jericho were looking for them. And because of her kindness to them, the people uh, of Israel, when they came in and took over the city of Jericho, they spared her and her family. In the book of Joshua, when it was written, it said that Rahab lived among them even to this day. Now, apparently, one of her, uh, she was a female ancestor of Boaz. So literally, the, the, the translation is Boaz was out of Rahab. Right? So if she was directly his mother, that creates some timeline issues. So she wasn't directly his mother. But she was likely one of his like, great-grandmother or something like that. What this means, ultimately, is she was a Canaanite. Okay, so for the, the Jewish nationalists of Jesus' day, who said, people of Israel, pure blood, that's a problem. You've got a Canaanite in Jesus' lineage. You've got a Canaanite in David's lineage. And it's not just Rahab, it's also Ruth. Okay. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Okay, remember the story of Ruth. This is such a fascinating story. I encourage you to read the book of Ruth. It's an awesome story. Ruth was a Moabite, which means, again, she was not an Israelite. And she is in the line, the lineage of David and Jesus. So if you remember the story, Naomi is her mother-in-law, and Naomi's husband and her sons all die. That means Ruth's husband dies. And Ruth remains faithful to her. She stays with her. She gives up her hope of an easy life of staying in Moab with her people and remarrying, which would be what was expected of her in that day. But instead, she travels back to Israel, to people that aren't her people, to a land she doesn't know, to a culture she doesn't know, to stay with Naomi. In this culture of leveret marriage, that was the custom of their day, uh, Ruth was Naomi's really only hope for provision, for security, for protection and safety. So Ruth, she leaves her people, and as an immigrant, comes into Israel, into the people of Israel, in the hopes of marrying into a household where she and Naomi could be cared for. Hers is a story of loyal love, faithfulness, that goes way beyond what was expected of her and what goes way beyond what was common among the Israelites of her day. The book of Ruth was likely written as a polemic against those who were arguing that David had Moabite blood in him and therefore he did not deserve to be king. In the book of Ruth, what we see is she followed the ways of Yahweh better than just about anybody else of her day. That she's exemplary because she demonstrated loyal love, which is one of the core character traits of God, to her mother-in-law, 
Naomi. And she didn't owe anything to her, but she did it anyways. And she finds Boaz, and she gets married and provides and cares for her mother-in-law, Naomi. So this is emphasizing and illustrating is that it has always been, Matthew is subtly kind of indicating here, it has always been not just being a part of the people of Israel, what includes you into the people of God. It's following the ways of Yahweh. It's faith in him and trust in him. God's sovereign election and then living out the ways of Yahweh. He's pointing to the themes of the gospel that he's going to develop more and more in his gospel. Next, we're going to see, so this, this is emphasizing the all of us, all people without distinction, are included in the people of God. Jesus has Ruth and Rahab in his lineage. They were not Israelites. So all people are included in the people of God. Next, he's going to emphasize our desperate, desperate, desperate need for a redeemer. We see this in two places. One is in the story of King David. Verse 6, remember, this is just a lineage or genealogy. He could very quickly just say, Jesse, the father of David, David, the father of Solomon, and keep moving. <laughs> just like, why are you bringing this up, Matthew? Whose mother had been Uriah's wife. So, this is one of those stories that if you were a part of the people of Israel, you'd want to forget. <laughs> you'd hope that everybody in your day had forgotten about this. Like, I know it's written down and we read it a lot, but like, let's not talk about it. It's one of those family stories that you're like, yeah, we just don't talk about Uncle Bill, right? You just don't bring it up. But Matthew specifically points to it. What's he doing? I think what he's doing is calling us to our need for a redeemer. To say, hey guys, even the good kings of our past were seriously flawed people. We need a new covenant. And Jesus brings this new covenant. David, whose father was Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. So he doesn't mention Bathsheba by name. I don't think that's a slight to her. It's more to emphasize David's two sins in this story. We can read about it in 2 Samuel 11. What happens here is the army goes off to war, and David, as the king, he stays behind. Shouldn't have stayed behind. He should have gone off with the army. But he doesn't. So he sees Bathsheba bathing, and he calls to her, and he sleeps with her. She gets pregnant. So he sends a message to the army, and he has Uriah, her husband, come back and report on the war and what's going on. So he tells Uriah to go home in the hopes that he will go home, he'll sleep with his wife, and then everything will be covered, and everybody will assume that the baby is indeed Uriah's. It's real, like, daytime reality TV Judge Judy story. Like, the Bible's super interesting. You should read it sometime. It's really cool. Um, <laughs> he doesn't. Uriah is actually a man of incredible honor and character. He sleeps at the entrance to the palace with the servants. Why? Because he says that the Ark of the Covenant is out at war. His, uh, the soldiers, uh, are, his brothers are out at war. Why would he take this luxury and privilege when they don't have the opportunity to? It's an act of solidarity with them. 
So David has one more trick up his sleeve, and he invites him over again, and he gets him drunk. And Uriah still won't go home <laughs> and sleep with his wife. So David sends a letter, carried by Uriah himself, to the commander of the army to put Uriah at the front. And when they get to, to get close to the enemy, a thing that they would never do because it was just foolish, they would get too close to the walls, and then they would all withdraw and allow Uriah to be killed. And of course, that happens. So David, who is one of Israel's greatest kings, and a man after God's own heart, seriously, seriously flawed, who had committed murder and adultery. And again, Matthew's point here is to emphasize that we need a new covenant. We need a redeemer. We need someone to redeem us from our sins. The word redeem, it means to ransom, to deliver and save from slavery. And through Christ, we can be delivered and saved. We are ransomed from our sins. So he's pointing the people who are reading this to the flaws of their ancestors in the past. And he's calling them out specifically saying, we need a redeemer, we need a new covenant. And we don't have time for this band. You guys can come and get set up. But in the devotional, <clears throat> you can read about this fun story, too. Uh, some of you guys are familiar with it. Uh, Judah, he's the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Again, he highlights this story. Okay, Judah, uh, his, his father, Israel, he blesses Judah and says that the king will come through Judah's line. David comes through Judah's line. Jesus comes through Judah's line. Judah was a scumbag, putting it nicely, all right? This is the guy who, uh, when he and his brothers throw Joseph in the pit, he decides, like, no, let's not just kill him. What do we profit if we kill him? Let's sell him so we can get some money for it. And so they sell him into slavery, into Egypt. Okay, he does that. And then there's this story with Tamar, which, again, we don't have time to go through it. But this is like Jerry Springer stuff, okay? This is nuts. And yet, God chose to bring the Messiah through this line to redeem their story. And Matthew's pointing this out again to reveal to all of them, guys, we need a Savior. We need a Redeemer. We need this new covenant. Running it back again in the hopes that this time we'll be able to obey the law better. We've seen this movie before. We need a savior. So, Jesus is the fulfillment of Israel and our great redeemer. And this is indeed good news. Let's pray and then we'll sing. Lord, Jesus, we thank you that, Lord, you are our redeemer. That, Lord, you can redeem our story. You have redeemed the story of Israel. Lord, we are so flawed without you. We are so in need of a Savior. And we thank you for your grace and your salvation that you bring to us and you give to us freely as a gift. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing together. If you guys need prayer while we're singing, there's prayer available in the back. Just head back there and receive prayer. Jesus, we worship you as Savior, as our Redeemer, as God incarnate. 
make a new covenant with us. That, Lord, our righteousness is not in ourselves. It's not in our obedience to the law, but, Jesus, it is in you and in you alone. So, Lord, all of our faith, all of our trust is in you. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. You guys can have a seat for a few moments. Remember, our big idea is Jesus is the fulfillment of Israel and our great Redeemer. A sociologist named Christian Smith, he did a study years ago where he polled a number of uh, Christian youth and asked them their perception of Christianity. He summarized his findings to say that most young people view Christianity as moralistic, therapeutic deism. Okay, those are big words. But deism means God is just kind of out there. He's a force out there. He's not really engaged in human affairs. Therapeutic meaning that God is only interested in helping make your life better. God's like your therapist who's just there to make, you, make your life easier. Right? That's how people perceive of God. Moralism means that Christianity is all about just being good. <laughs> the story of Jesus, I don't know how that happened. Right? How that perception, how the message gets so diluted and so distorted in our churches. Focusing on the moralism one. Hear me, hear me. Christianity, the story of Christianity, the story of the Bible, the story of the gospel is the exact opposite of that. Is the exact opposite of the story that if I just try better, I can be righteous. If I'm more religious, if I follow X, Y, Z and these laws better, then I'll be right with God. The story of Christianity is 100% the opposite of that. The story of the Bible and the gospel is the story of generations trying to do that and failing and falling short. Generation after generation trying to follow the law and unable to do it. Like David, like Judah, failing. And so we need a new covenant. We need a redeemer. The story of the gospel is that we are enslaved to our sin and we need a savior to redeem us, to save us, to make us new. And it's through faith in Jesus that we are then made righteous. Living righteously is important, but it's not the thing that saves us and makes us right with God. Instead, the order is flipped. God makes us holy through Christ when our faith is in him. We are made new. And then, out of love of God's grace and appreciation for him, then we strive to live his way and to please him. So I don't know how we get this idea that we just need to be moralistic. And if we try harder to be good, then we'll earn God's favor. No, it's exactly the opposite. God has given us his favor. He redeems us. He saves us. He makes us holy and righteous and new. And then we are free to serve him and to love him and follow his way. Now, if you're viewing a good indicator, if you're viewing Christianity through a moralistic lens or a legalistic lens or a self-righteousness lens, is if you read the stories of Judah and David and you have the perception of, those guys are awful. <laughs> it's a good indicator that you're missing the heart of the gospel. Because instead, when we read those stories, we should say, 
apart from the grace of God, so go I. We should look at ourselves first and say, if it weren't for God's grace, that would be me. Thank you, Jesus, for your redemption, for your salvation, that you have brought me. Because if it weren't for you, I would do that and worse. I would be that. But only through the grace of God are we made new. John Bunyan in his Pilgrim's Progress, he depicts the Christian life as (laughs) before knowing Jesus carrying a large burden on your shoulders. (laughs) And in the story, remember how Christian eventually loses the burden and it falls off. When I talk to people who have accepted Jesus and believe in Jesus, that's what they often say. When I believed in him for the first time, it feels like a burden just fell off of my shoulders. The weight of guilt and shame of my life, the sins that I've committed, the life that I have lived are gone. And for those of you who feel as if you're still carrying around that weight of guilt, the things that you have done, the sins that you have committed, the ways that you have violated God's law, the shame, how you've applied that to yourself and said, this is me, this is who I am. The hope of the gospel of Jesus as our Redeemer is that he has ransomed you from that. And he has removed it from you. Not by you being better, being more righteous and more legalistic, but because of his grace that he has given you. And that is the beauty of grace, isn't it? Nobody deserves it. (laughs) You didn't deserve it, but he gave it to you anyways. Nobody earns grace. You can't unearn it. He just gives it to you. That is the hope of the gospel. And so that burden of guilt and shame, it can be gone. And some of you are also carrying around the, the markers, the shame of previous generations in your family. Those stories that you just don't want to share, that you hope nobody uncovers, that you hope nobody finds out. You carry the weight of that as well. Again, the hope of the gospel is that you are redeemed. That Jesus has ransomed you from your sin. That Jesus can redeem any story. He had some pretty shady characters in his lineage. And that story was redeemed through Christ. (laughs) I love how Pete Scazzaro says it. He says, Jesus lives in your heart, but Grandpa lives in your bones. (laughs) The sins of our past generations affect us, and they influence us. Genetic predispositions to sin, patterns of thinking and behavior, trauma from your early years, the sins that others have committed against you. We carry those around with us. The hope of the gospel is that Jesus can redeem us. Now, that doesn't mean that you don't bear the scars of that or the wounds of that, your personal sin or the sins of your forefathers. It doesn't mean you won't have to go to counseling. It doesn't mean you won't have to develop practices in order to retrain your mind to thinking gospel-centric thoughts about who you are 
doesn't mean it won't be a challenge about learning to live in your new identity in Christ. It'll require self-exploration, scripture reading, prayer, conversations with fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, disciplines. Yet the gospel means Jesus as our Redeemer means that there is hope. That we will not remain in that sin. That we will not remain in the identities that have been imposed on us from previous generations. The guilt and the shame that have been given to us and that we carry because of our personal sin. We look forward not only to the removal of that, but to a day when Christ will return and make all things new. Like the people of Israel who waited generations for the first revealing, the first advent of the Messiah, so we wait for the second advent of Christ. That promise was made in Genesis 3.15 and all through the history of the people of Israel, through the prophets, that God would bring the Messiah. They waited and waited and waited. And now, still, we are waiting for Christ to return yet again. And we can trust that his promise is good because he fulfilled his promise to the people of Israel. So we know that no, long, no, long, no matter how long he tarries, no matter how long we must wait, he will fulfill his promise to return. And as the book of Revelation says, he will make all things new. And that includes you. <laughs> that includes me. And so in our struggle and our fight with sin, with trauma, we have this hope. We hold out this hope that Jesus will return and that he will redeem our stories for good. And he will redeem all things and make all things new. Same wise Gamgee says in the Lord of the Rings, he will make all the sad things come untrue. And so we don't have to wear these labels of previous generations and their sins. We don't have to carry the guilt of our sin and the shame of our sin. Instead, we can strengthen our faith that we do believe Jesus has removed our sin from us and that we have left that burden behind us. And so we can walk forward in faith. And we also hold out hope for Christ's second advent when he will come and make all things new. And he is good for his word. He has proven it in the past and we can trust it. So as we look at the, just the ugly stuff in the world around us, the pain and the suffering that we experience now, the results of sin in the world around us, we can have hope. We can never give up hope. That Jesus is our great redeemer and he will make all things new. Lord, all of our trust is in you. Our hope is in you. Lord, for those who feel as if they're carrying a burden of guilt and shame from their sins, from previous generations' sins, from the trauma that they've experienced, Lord, strengthen their faith. Give them faith to trust in you. That, Lord, you are our great Redeemer. Give us all hope that one day you will return and make all things new. That you will make us new. You will make all creation new. And we will live in your presence in the fullness of joy forevermore. 
Lord, we long for that day, but in the meantime, we wait, just as so many did for so many generations for your first appearing. Lord, we wait now, and we long for you to return, to establish your kingdom in full and make all things new. And so, Lord, we wait with hope, longing for you, fully expecting you to return. Thank you, Jesus, for the hope and the redemption that you have brought us and this new life that you have given us. It's in your name we pray, and it's in your name we worship. Amen. Let's stand and let's sing one more song together. Again, if you need prayer, especially if you feel as if you're carrying that weight and the burden of sin and shame, go receive prayer. Jesus has redeemed us. Lord Jesus, we just thank you for the hope that we have in you, for your redemption that you have brought us. Lord, that that burden of guilt and shame can be removed from us when our faith and trust is in you for our salvation. You are our Savior. You are our Redeemer. Lord, you are worthy of praise and glory and honor. And so we praise you and worship you, Lord. And we make it our life's aim to honor you, to please you, to bring you glory and honor for how you have saved us and how you have redeemed us. Jesus, would your spirit stir in our hearts and move us to not be self-righteous, to not be legalistic, but, Lord, to desire to love and serve you because of the grace that you have shown us. Help us to show that grace and that mercy to those who are struggling with sin. And, Lord, to point them to the Redeemer, to the Healer, our Savior, in Jesus Christ. In your name, Lord, we pray. Amen. Amen. If you guys need prayer, you can still receive prayer in the back. Uh, thanks for being here. Have a great week.